Okay, we're back. I'm finally ready to present Erlen's Point Massacre Part 2. Just like I warned you in Episode 1, there is some inconsistency here. Facts can be hard to find. So I highly encourage you to do some of your own research if you're interested. And if you find anything that I missed, report back to me. Uh, I discovered another podcast that covered this topic during my research. It's a show called Scene of the Crime. And they specialize in covering murders local to the Pacific Northwest. So if you're listening to this, I feel like that might also be of interest to you. Uh, the Erlen's Point episode is Season 2, Episode 8. I haven't listened to it yet because I didn't want it to influence the episode that I'm making, but I will be doubling back to it after I'm finished here. I will drop a link to it in the show notes. So we left off in the summer of 1934 when leads for the case dried up and it went cold. There was about a year of downtime where leadership changed on the Bremerton side of the water and different people were added to the case over on the Seattle side. Investigative work picks back up in the summer of 1935 with the Seattle PD looking into similar murders and they're hoping to find a connection that they can tie back into the Erlen's Point case. They look into a complaint filed by Dr. Spann, a plastic surgeon working in downtown Seattle, who states that he was attacked by a man wielding a hammer. The attacker fled, and there were no active suspects associated with that case. Seattle police also put out a call to other police stations for any crimes that might be related. Oregon PD responded that a man named Frank Aiken had been murdered. He was found shot to death the day he was the day before he was supposed to testify in court. He had discovered evidence of fraud in local government, and it seemed like someone had wanted him dead for it. This murder had its own sort of scandal going on, though. A local pawn shop owner claimed that he was a friend and a confidant of Mr. Aiken. And he told tablines that Mr. Aiken was having a long-running affair with this mysterious and violent woman who had threatened to kill him before. I mean, two of the victims at Erlen's Point had been shot, so there was a tenuous connection there at best. I poked around and tried to find out if any shells had been found at the scene of Mr. Aiken's murder, and maybe they matched the caliber of shells found at Erlen's Point, which is a thirty-eight caliber bullet but no joy. The police start looking into motives instead. They learn that Anna Fleeter, 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 I did this in the first episode, I'm still not sure how I'm supposed to say this. They learn that Anna Fleeter had been trying to open a tavern in Seattle, but refused to pay any extortion to the sort of local crime syndicate that was running the scene. So was it a gang-related crime? Was this a revenge-motivated thing? There was a history of reports linking the Fleeter. God, I just did this two minutes ago. Fleeter? Flighter? I think I went with Fleeter. There was a history of reports linking the Fleeter's home to suspicious boat activity, possibly rum running or drugs. Prohibition had only been repealed in 1933, so we're talking maybe a year ago. And... Booze had been a black market item for the last decade, usually controlled and distributed by small-town gangs, so 
Did they knock her off for refusing to do business with them? Frank was known to be a gambler, and evidence of gambling was found at the crime scene, playing cards and poker chips everywhere. Was this just a casual night of cards with the neighbors? Much more common in the 1930s? Or were the stakes higher? He had been known to gamble with some dangerous people. The names I found listed sounded like they came straight out of a gangster movie. These are names like Turkey Neck and Little Dutch. So was Frank unable to pay his gambling debts when someone came to call them in? At some point, a detective named O.K. Bodia comes onto the case on the Seattle side of the water. And this just sounds wild, but I found it in a, a news article from the day. I will... I'll have to upload this somewhere because I, I had to get it from like a newspaper archive website. Mm. So maybe I can upload a picture of this somewhere, but it's a newspaper article from the time. And he states that he went into a beer parlor in downtown Seattle and just overheard some folks talking about the massacre along with who they thought did it and the man's address. Well, that's a pretty big coincidence. It makes me wonder if something else happened there. Even if some people were talking about it in a bar, like, why would you also be dropping the man's address? So I feel like this story could be a cover-up for him having gotten that information in a different way. Or maybe it's a partial truth. Perhaps the detective did overhear some conversation and then got a little more involved in some way to find out that man's name and address, you know? So he takes this name and this address, Leo Hall, 710 Columbia Street, and goes looking for him. But Leo Hall is nowhere to be found. He does have some known associates, though, and one of them happens to be locked up on burglary charges at the moment. The detective goes and pays a visit to this associate, a Mr. Larry Paulos. Larry Paulos had a history of offenses and was keen to make a deal when they hauled him in. He wanted less time in prison, and in return, he said he could tell them who had killed Frank Aiken in Oregon. He told the police that he had originally been hired to rough up Mr. Aiken by a man named Jack Justice. Jack Justice had asked him to carry out a hit, but Paulos instead had recommended his friend Leo Hall for the job. The police did some investigative work to confirm the story, checking out the timeline, men's whereabouts, alibis, details of the crime, and it was all quite plausible. So Detective Bodia alerted the Oregon PD, and everyone started looking for this Leo Hall. Detective Bodia sort of prods Mr. Paulos, asking more questions about Leo Hall, and the response that he gets is quite surly. He says, A swell pal he turned out to be. First he promises me smokes that never come, and then while I'm tight in stir, he runs out with my wife. But he better watch his step. I've got enough on him to burn him plenty. I'm talking of those six killings. If you want to learn more, you'll have to ask my wife. I heard her talk of it in her sleep, and she mentioned Hall's name. So the police go in search of Larry's wife, Peggy, Peggy Paulos. Word goes around that her husband has talked and that the police are looking for her and 
she becomes afraid. So she walks into an attorney's office and makes her confession. The attorney alerts the police and Peggy Paulos turns out to be none other than the Letha Peterson that the Bremerton police had interviewed immediately after the crime. It seems like Mrs. Paulos had a handful of names she went by. Uh, another one I saw while I was researching was Betty Burns. So a uh, woman of many aliases. So the police bring her in for more questioning, and this time she spills the beans. She admits that she was there that night at the Fleeter's home, but that she didn't kill anyone. Leo was the one with the gun, a pearl-handled revolver that she had seen him retrieve from a safety deposit box. She lays out the details of the crime for them. Her husband, Larry, he'd been in jail or maybe on the run. She'd been working as a waitress and spending time with Leo. She mentioned the fleeters to Leo after waiting on them in the restaurant. She'd been to some of their parties before, and she knew they had money. And that's when Leo came up with the plan to rob them. He retrieved his gun, and they got on the ferry to Bremerton. Then they hitchhiked out to Erlen's Point and arrived in the middle of the night. Peggy and Leo put on masks and gloves so they wouldn't be identified. They forced their way into the home at gunpoint, and they found that the Fleeters were actually having a small party. There were four people there instead of the expected two. They were all playing cards in the sunroom. Leo held them at gunpoint while Peggy bound their hands with shoelaces and tape they had brought. Some reports say that they had taped the victim's mouth shut and maybe even their eyes. Two more partygoers arrived from a beer run while this was in progress, bringing up the number of victims in the house to six. They tied them up with strips of torn bedsheets, having to improvise at this point. While Peggy was tying up Anna Fleeter, her mask slipped and Anna recognized her. The woman was obviously in distress, and she asked if she could go lay down in her bedroom. Uh, Leo took her to the bedroom, and when they were alone, Anna confessed that she had recognized Peggy. And she thought she had been such a nice girl. How could she do something like this? Having been recognized, Leo decided that Anna had to die. After that, he attacked Mr. Balcom with a fireplace poker, and Peggy panicked. She realized that he was killing people, and all of this had gotten out of hand. So Peggy ran out of the house and into the night. Leo tried to shoot at her as she ran away, but it was too dark to see. A heel broke off of her shoe, but she kept running, alternately like hiding in roadside ditches and trying to hitchhike a ride back to town when any of the cars went by until she was picked up by the, uh, the bartenders that we talked about in part one. And she told them that she had been roughed up by a sailor on a bad date. She just needed a place to stay until she could get back on a ferry to Seattle. Three days later, Peggy ran into Leo in Seattle. He told her he had to kill those people because they had recognized her. And if she had told anyone what happened... He would kill her too. Leo gets picked up in Oregon after trying to run a scam on a man and steal his car. He stands trial for the Erlins Point murders in Seattle, 
at the same time that Jack Justice stands trial for the murder of Frank Aiken in Portland. The trial is a spectacle. It's held at the Kitsap County Courthouse in Port Orchard. Hundreds of spectators show up to watch the trial, but there are only 84 seats available. And the judge instructs the bailiff to sort of draw straws for the seats every morning. I looked up the census records for Port Orchard at this time, and so they only do the census every 10 years, so 1930 or 1940. So I rounded to the closest year, which is 1930, and the population in Port Orchard was 1,145 people. So the idea that hundreds of people are just showing up for this trial, like, it's insane. The trial lasted 10 days. It involved 61 witnesses. At the time, the trial cost Kitsap County $2,500. I plugged this into an inflation calculator out of curiosity, and uh, what that would look like today is damn near $50,000. Yeesh. On Thursday, December 19th of 1935, a jury of eight men and four women returned the verdict that Hall is found guilty of first-degree murder, and that the jury has voted for the death penalty. Peggy Paulos is acquitted of murder and set free. They deliberated for four hours and 45 minutes and cast four ballots. This was a little bit confusing to me, but I, it seems that historically the way it was done is that each ballot sort of has a different task. So like Peggy Paulos is acquitted on the first ballot. Leo Hall is convicted of murder on the second ballot. And then the third and fourth ballots are to achieve unanimous decisions on the death penalty. Leo Hall is sent to Walla Walla, and his execution is scheduled for September 11th of 1936. He received two short stays of execution to allow his mother and his lawyer to come and see him before the execution was carried out. He was hung at 11 p.m. and pronounced dead at 11.16. Meanwhile, reporters had located Peggy in Portland, where she was working as a waitress, trying to support a son, while Larry, still her husband, was in jail. And it's worth noting at this point that the media coverage of Peggy throughout this whole process had been negative and insulting. She was often portrayed as manipulative, and her physical appearance was described, and they called her drab and mousy. They insult her hair and her clothing. She's accused of crying on cue at the trial. And I don't know how much of that is or isn't true. But there are some pictures of her and she's not ugly. Like, I, I wouldn't describe her in those ways. So, I don't know. But this story ends with reporters banging down her door in the middle of the night while Leo Hall hangs shouting at her, asking her how she feels. And her answer was, My God, how would anyone feel? I wish I were dead. Go away. One thread that I couldn't unravel was the theory that both Frank Aiken and one of the victims of the massacre had been shot through the eye in some sort of recognizable way, like a pattern. I, I couldn't find any evidence of that. Um, we did learn in the end that this is the same killer, so it is possible. 
the Fleeter House remained on Erlin's Point until 1977 when it was sold, put on a barge, and then floated down to South Colby, where it was confirmed to still be standing as recently as November of 1999, although I'm uh, completely unsure of its status today. I find that kind of wild. Like, they literally picked that house up, put it on a barge, and then sent it south of Port Orchard. That's insane. Another thing I came across in my research pretty often was someone named Don Moody. Everything I read said he was a local author working on a book about the massacre, but I couldn't find this book. I couldn't find any evidence that was ever published, and he never shared any of his sources. He's quoted regularly as a sort of local expert, but there's no evidence to support any of his claims. Rose Lay, who is the last known owner of the Fleeter home, doesn't like his theories either. She's quoted as saying, there was blood in the bedroom closet and under the living room carpet, but no ghosts. Speaking of ghosts, we're coming up on autumn. I'm starting to feel that chill in the air and that means it's time for campfires, warm blankets, and spooky stories. I have some of my own spooky stories to tell you from growing up in town, and I would love to hear any ghost stories that you have too. You can email me or leave me a voice message with your local spooky story. There will be a link in the show notes. Also, I know I haven't been the greatest about releasing episodes on a regular schedule, so if anyone out there is interested in being a sort of like accountability partner, let me know. Okay, bye. Otherwise, I don't know. What do I even say here? What do you say at the end of a podcast? Now I'm just singing Daft Punk. I feel like I usually have a sign off here, but mostly I just want you to tell me your spooky stories. Tell me all your creepy ghost stories. This is why we don't drink in podcast. Oh, we're supposed to drink coffee, not beer.